As you know, for the last couple of months, we've been in the middle of a series called Myths, Parables, and Other True Stories. And so this is the eighth part in that series. And as we've been coming together and talking as a community, we've had people from this community share their stories with us. And it's been an opportunity for us to hear how other people have come to the place that they are, to hear experiences different of our own. And we're going to continue with that this morning. So as we get started, I'm going to invite Jason forward to come and share with us about his story. So this is Jason Delavan. Many of you probably know Jason. Him and his wife, Debbie, and their daughter, Claire, have been a part of our church for several years. And Jason and his wife have served on our board of elders as well. And Jason has a unique story of his own. And this lectern makes me feel more comfortable because I can stand behind it and hide a little. Um, Good morning. I was, when I was thinking about what I wanted to tell you all, I grabbed my old Bible from when I was uh, like eighth grader, ninth grader, and I was going through it, and it's interesting. Uh, I, I found one thing I wrote down that I wanted to start with, uh, five minutes, um, that's dated 7-1. So I don't know what year it was, but it was probably like 1991 or something like that. And it said, it says, seven one. you felt for the first time the inexpressible, indescribable, true love for and of God. And it was so rare of a thing that I made a point of writing it down with the date when I felt it. Um, and when I was looking at sort of dredging up my old baggage for this testimony, um, I found that there were like two themes um, in my sort of spiritual story that kept coming up. Um, One was looking for and longing for a transformative experience that would bring me in line with God and his will, like a promise of purpose, direction, freedom from uncertainty. And the other theme is fear, a lot of fear. Uh, I grew up to be scared of God from as far back as I can remember, I was raised an evangelical, uh, Pentecostal, and I have an image in my head, the earliest one I could think of from when I was probably around six, standing in front of a dresser next to my mom and asking her if I could have Jesus in my heart, and she did the little Lord's Prayer, and then we went to church. And uh, I was trying to remember why I asked for that, and I think... Um, the reason I wanted to get saved was because I was afraid of going to hell. Um, I was raised to believe in hell from day one, but not just hell, all of Satan's minions and demons and spiritual warfare. Uh, I remember a time my brother saw a demon in our living room, and that was sort of par for the course. It wasn't that odd, although we prayed over it, and I think it went away. (laughs) Um, Christianity was a really big part of my life growing up, and it was the culture I lived in. You know, we went to church on Sunday whether we wanted to go or not. Youth group was on Wednesday. I attended the same Christian school from the time I started in kindergarten all the way through eighth grade when we moved. Uh, And at that school, as a Christian school, we had weekly chapel services. All the school books were Christian-focused. And once a year, we had to march around the campus seven times while singing and chanting which in hindsight was weird, uh, but at the time, 
seemed normal. Bring the walls down in Jericho or something. I forget what the song was. Anyway, um, I remember going to creationist conferences that explained how life in the Garden of Eden happened, how the earth was less than 10,000 years old, how Moses was able to part the Red Sea with like actual proof of chariots underwater and stuff. Um, and I actually remember a moment in one of those where I felt a really deep fear, and it, you maybe call it awe, but like scary awe, um, when I, for a minute, actually believed or felt like what it would be like to believe that the earth was only 10,000 years old and that all of those things that happened in the beginning of the Bible, God did, and not that long ago, uh, I found that terrifying. Um, because that God is a really big, scary dude. He's like a world changer. And it was, I, it stuck with me that that moment was maybe formative. I don't know. Um, I used to go to Christian summer camps in the swamps of Florida when I was 10 or 11 for a couple of months at a time. And these were missionary boot camps where you had to pack a duffel bag with a pair of boots. You got one can of bug spray, and that was it. And it ran out in the first four days. Uh, and... Uh, we were drilled, basically, in the Bible. We had memorization contests. We would have uh, daily services. I learned how to dig a hole and pour concrete. Uh, I passed out one time from heat stroke because I didn't drink my one and a half canteens that I was supposed to. Um, I remember being afraid there of being called into the ministry. I was worried that God was going to have me go someplace really scary, and I didn't want that to happen. And I was telling him, I'll go, but don't. Don't send me there. <laughs> I had unexplained events occur to me also. I saw visions. Uh, one would have me, cause me to cramp up, and I couldn't talk or move for a couple of hours. Um, you know, uh, praise songs. Um, about blood and sacrifice and blind faith uh, were all around me. And later on in life, I got to the point where I couldn't sing them without my mouth getting numb. It's like a weird emotional response to that. Um, for all the sort of unexplained events, I had prophecies that sort of came true, kind of, and all those sorts of things. I had a lot of fake occurrences of things where I was sort of forced to have a spiritual event happen, uh, where I would be put in a room and told I couldn't come out until one of the gifts of the Spirit manifested, and so I had to make up seeing a vision to get out of there. Um, or uh, praying in tongues. I was forced into it. Um, same kind of thing, like time out until you speak in tongues. Uh, I also had church leaders who would, one would every week say something in tongues and then the pastor would translate. Uh, we, got, we were Pentecostal, so there's a lot of being slain in the spirit, and so people would fall over during church service and stuff. And I remember going up for one of many altar calls because I really wanted that conversion experience that would make everything complete, that would turn me into a Christian. So I would go up time and again and... Uh, have pastors try to push me down to slay me in the spirit. And there's always the catcher behind making sure that you don't hit your head on the way down. Um, anyway, 
my parents split up when I was 12. We moved to the boonies of Oregon. Uh, the divorce was rough. A lot of bad things happened, and church leaders picked sides. So one of my parents was a sinner, and the other was, you know, the son of God. Um, anyway, I could go on. It, there is that theme of I was sort of torn between um, being afraid of God and wanting to do the right thing and also feeling a lot of anxiety that I'm not there yet. And at some point, other people around me have had it happen. And maybe that's why I wrote that line um, that I would flip and all of a sudden I would be, I would feel like a Christian um, instead of just pursuing it, you know. Um, that never happened, honestly, and I've given up looking for that. And uh, um, if I had to explain why I'm here now, I think something feels good about church uh, and being in a community, and maybe it's recovering fundamentalism that's sort of stuck in me, but I like being with all of you. And I think there's some good things about church when you get rid of the emotional manipulation and the, the offensive language and you focus more on the human side of it than the black magic part of it. Um, I also married a woman who grew up outside the church, outside of church culture, and, and she taught me how church speak can be offensive uh, to people and dangerous. Um, so I'm here. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I don't know if it really matters. I really like... Um, the human element of loving others, and that's that's what I'm trying to do. So that's my story. You know, we all have such different stories, but there's also so many ways that we can find ourselves in the stories of other people. So no matter what that looks like, there's probably things that resonate with Jason's story with you, whether it's being in that space of needing a new place to understand who God is or coming through things that you later see can be problematic or maybe being in that space of having questions and figuring out what it means to be a Christian, to be the church, if that stuff's important in the first place. For me, I think what we do here together in community is essential to what it means to be a Christian. I also grew up with a kind of understanding that being a Christian was about what you believed more than anything, and that that affected what you did, and that was important too, but it was very much focused on the individual person. I think that faith is so much more than that. You know, it's the reason we gather here. Each one of us comes to this place for our own reasons, but there's something that we find in the connection of being with other people who share in this journey. And the power that we have as a Christian community comes because we gather together in ways that we can't do on our own. 
So thank you so much for all of you who have shared stories. If you're interested in sharing your story, let me know. We'd love to have you uh, as we finish this series out or even as we kind of continue into the future. And so in connection with that, today we're going to be talking about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You may be familiar with this parable. We're going to read it together now. In Matthew 20, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After he agreed with the workers to pay them a denarian, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out around nine in the morning and he saw others standing around in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they went. Again around noon and at three in the afternoon, he did the same thing. Around five in the afternoon, he went out and he found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you just standing around doing nothing all day long? Because nobody has hired us, they responded. And he responded, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and give them their wage, beginning with the last one hired and moving on finally to the first. When those who were hired at five in the afternoon, each one received a denarian. Now when those were hired first came, they thought that they'd receive more, but each one of them also received a denarian. When they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and they received the same pay that we did, even though we had to work the whole day in the hot sun. But he replied to one of them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you a denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you resentful because I'm generous? So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. This is an interesting parable. It seems to be pretty self-evident what that's about. For a really long time, I looked at this parable, and, you know, Jesus starts it off right at the very beginning. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like this. So I'm like, okay, this is... After we die, we go to heaven, and this is telling us what that experience is going to be like. We have the landowner, who is God, and then we have all of these workers, who are us in the church, obviously. And this is a story about how things are kind of even in heaven. How when, uh, you know, well, I grew up in the church, and so, you know, I spent most of my life doing this thing called faith. And so maybe I'm like one of the earlier people in this parable where I've been doing the good work of God, but then somebody's going to come in and they're going to become a Christian late in life and have this conversion experience, and God's going to do the same thing with them and give them all of the same things in the kingdom. And I can see how I would feel that that's not fair. And so this makes sense because this is a story then about God's generosity, how God is generous to each one of us and how God is merciful and gracious. And so it's a way for us to know for sure what God's going to do and hold that promise, but it's also a way 
for us to kind of remind ourselves that there's a bigger story involved. So if it seems unfair that someone has to do more work than somebody else, it's okay because God's going to even the score in the end. Everything will be all right. I'm not saying that everything about this is a terrible way to read this parable because there's a lot of really important things that we bring to that because of the way we understand God. God is generous and merciful. You know, we have hope in a God who is concerned about each person, who doesn't keep record of wrongs or who doesn't expect certain things out of every single one of us. These are important things for us to remember about how we understand who God is. But I don't actually think that's what Jesus is doing as he tells this parable. What Jesus is doing is something a little bit different. And I think for us to understand that, we kind of have to let go of everything we bring to the table after 2,000 years of church history, of, of all of the, this kind of talk that Jesus must certainly be talking about things that make perfect sense to us. What I'm interested in doing now as I read the Bible is trying to understand who Jesus' audience was or who the biblical writer's audience was, what that meant to them, and then how we can understand that in our own context and how God speaks to us through that in our own circumstances. In this parable, I'm reminded of the kinds of people that Jesus spent most of his time with. He spent a lot of time with the poor. He spent time with people who were marginalized and were cast out of regular roles in society. And so when Jesus is talking about kind of these economic themes here of of day laborers, it seems reasonable that Jesus might actually have been talking to day laborers in a marketplace who were hearing this parable. Certainly the people that he was talking to would have been familiar with what it's like to be a day laborer or what those people represented, especially in a culture where all of the wealth for the most part, was held by a few elite people, where people who had owned land over many years or over generations had lost that land to large, wealthy landowners and their families. And so when Jesus talks about these workers going out into the vineyard, he's talking about people who rely on others in the community giving them employment on a day-to-day basis in order to get the basic sustenance of life. The denarian in this story that the, the laborer offers is one day's wage, but it's not one day's wage that allows you to pay for rent and going out to dinner and, you know, spending some money on Amazon The denarian is one day's wage for basic sustenance. So if you earned a denarian, you were likely able to feed yourself and maybe your family. If you were a laborer and you didn't get to work a full day and you didn't get to earn that denarian, it meant that you or people in your family were probably going to be hungry that night. And so this is the context that Jesus tells this story in. It's also reminiscent of uh, a story in the Old Testament. And the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to would have been reminded right away of this story 
that David tells in 1 Samuel 30. And I'm not going to read through that story, but I want to give you just a, a little bit of the highlights of it because I think it's really important. David has an army of 600 people, and the Amalekites come in and they pillage some towns in Israel, and they take women and children away, and these, these soldiers come back to find that their towns have been devastated. So David takes an army, and he pursues these people. He pursues the Amalekites so that they can recover the people who have been lost so they can get a kind of justice, and God leads them in this. Well, as they're doing this in this long pursuit, some of the soldiers get tired, and 200 of them wait by uh, the side of water. They set up a camp, and they kind of guard all of the resources and the, the materials and luggage that are around. Um, while the other 400 go off with David. And those 400 end up being victorious in battle when they finally hunt down the Amalekites. And so they bring back the Israelites, they bring back everything that was taken, and they have new plunder as well. And they celebrate that God has delivered their enemies over to them. But when the armies return, the 400 who went with David return back to the camp where the 200 waited, they're understandably a little bit upset that these people didn't do anything. And so they say, we're going to divide up all of these spoils amongst ourselves. Those people don't get anything at all. And then David does something bold, and he says, no. Each one of us is going to share evenly. We're going to split this among the whole group because we're God's family, and this is what God has given unto us. And so at the very end of that chapter, David says, For the share of the one who goes down into battle shall be the same as the share of the one who stays by the baggage. They will share alike. So from that day forward, David made a regulation and a law in Israel which remained in place even to this day. So as the Israelites hear this story, of Jesus talking about these workers in the vineyard who receive different wages or work different periods of time but receive the same wage, they're immediately reminded of the story of David. And the story of David wasn't a story about a future in heaven someplace else. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about here is the very reality that God is building among us. So the people see what happens in this parable and they think, oh, this is the way the world is supposed to be here and now. This is what it means to be the kingdom of heaven, is not just to hope for a future somewhere else where we don't worry about these things, but to create that reality here among ourselves. Jesus says this is what the kingdom is like. And then he tells this story. It's not just about wages, but it's about the full inclusion of every part of your being. The kingdom is a place where everyone experiences the full dignity and worth of who they are and who God created them to be. So what Jesus is doing is more than just teaching us how to be a good person. Jesus is revealing the kingdom of heaven, and he's inviting us to be a part of it.
All throughout Matthew, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so Jesus invites us into this kingdom, but he asks something from us as well. Being a part of this kingdom requires repentance. As I've been thinking about this parable and what it means to seek after the kingdom of heaven this week, um, I can't help but think about what happened in Charlottesville last weekend. And I think it's really important not just to talk vaguely about these things, but to actually name what happened. A large group of mostly white men lit torches and walked through predominantly black neighborhoods with Nazi insignia, chanting Nazi phrases and saying, Jews will not replace us. And then our president responded to that event, unwilling to condemn those actions outright. And then several days later, doubled down on that very same thing, working against unity and setting up further divisions empowering people whose goal was nothing more than to marginalize. Racism, white nationalism, and white supremacy are evils that have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And yet they're ingrained in the very fabric and nature of who we are as a country. They're part of our legacy. Uh, Our nation was birthed on the genocide of Native Americans, and then it was built on the backs of black slaves. These are things that we can't eradicate from our histories, and they're scars that we can't ignore today. And I believe we are called to be kingdom makers, and I think that's what Jesus is doing in this parable, is he's inviting us to create the reality that we want to see in the world. He's inviting us to partner with him in doing something new and beautiful and amazing. To be a part of this kingdom requires continued repentance. It means that we need to openly acknowledge that these things are a part of our story, that these wounds are our wounds. It means that we need to acknowledge the ways that we participate in systems of injustice and oppression. And it means that we need to continue being advocates and allies. But we also need to acknowledge where we have privilege. So my privilege means that I generally don't have to worry about being objectified or viewed primarily as a sexual object. It means I don't need to worry about being silenced in a conversation by people who are mansplaining, and it means that I don't have to worry about being assaulted walking down a street by myself. 
but our sisters do. My privilege means that I don't have to worry about being pulled over if I'm not breaking the law. And if I do get pulled over, I don't have to worry about what the outcome of that situation might be. But our brothers and sisters who are black do. My privilege means that I don't have to worry about being thrown out of my family or being ridiculed if I show affection to my significant other. But many of our LGBT brothers and sisters do. My privilege means that I don't have to think about being characterized or accused of being a terrorist every morning if I put on a hijab or when I have to go through airport security. But our Muslim brothers and sisters do. So all of us come from different places. Some of us have more privilege than others. All of us can probably relate in some ways to those experiences of privilege. But here's the difficult one for me, is that my privilege means that I don't have to think about racism, white nationalism, and white supremacy until events like Charlottesville happen. But many of our brothers and sisters can never forget those things. They're always present. I'm learning that acknowledging privilege isn't about shame. And it has taken me a while to understand that. It's about recognizing those things that we haven't earned, but were just given to us because of where we were born, or the color of our skin, or our sexual orientation, or a number of things. Recognizing our privilege isn't about holding shame because of it. It's about recognizing the advantages that we experience that others don't. And recognizing where we have privilege then allows us to hope and work toward a future where others can experience those same things without looking like us or without having our experiences. More importantly, which is a little bit ironic considering I'm standing up here before you, is that um, I'm learning that privilege means that I need to talk less and listen more. And listening means more than just waiting for the next chance to speak. It means trying to understand somebody else's perspective. It means asking them clarifying questions when we don't understand or to make sure that we're understanding what they're communicating. It means reflecting back what we hear so that others know they're being heard. It means walking alongside somebody else and allowing them to lead us as we follow their direction. And so in light of everything that is happening in and around our country right now, it is imperative that we continue to talk about these things. But there are more voices than mine that we need to hear. So I'm excited to invite 
Anthony Williams forward. And Anthony is going to share with us, from his perspective, what these experiences are like and share with us a little bit more about where he comes from and what his experience is in light of all of these things happening around us. So would you welcome Anthony Williams forward? Thank you, Bob. Uh, Bob asked me to do this, and it's uh, a privilege to do so. Uh, I just kind of put a few notes together, uh, because I think the main thing that Bob asked me was, what was my reaction to Charlottesville? And to be honest, it was, it wasn't much of one. It was, oh, okay, that's happening again. Uh, it was, oh, well, what are we surprised at? Uh, and that's a privilege in and of itself to just kind of think that all these instances are just kind of blase and just like, you know, what else is new? Uh, but while thinking of this, uh, my best friend shared something that I had shared long ago that's kind of a meme that I can post to Facebook later, but it just says, uh, I had been working on the assumption that eventually everyone figures it out and goes on living the life they've created, which is mostly true, but as soon as you figure it out, something else changes. So you figure that out too, and you keep going, so it really doesn't stop, and there isn't just one it to figure out which is okay and a little intimidating, but I know we will be fine as long as we keep on creating and help each other along the way. Uh, I, I kind of assume that about most of my life, especially growing up in Tyler, Texas, uh, as, as it looked for, from my perspective, there was Nickelodeon, a network for kids. Uh, you know, I had friends of kind of, you know, a little diverse, but not that diverse. I went to a mostly black school uh, but my grandparents, of course, they grew up, you know, born in 1936 and 1920-something, uh, both educators. So I can remember every school year when I would start, they would uh, ask me how many black kids were in my uh, class, which I just thought was so, like, overboard and so old school. Like, I'm not thinking about that, you know. You know, I'm glad to know Sally and Trayvon and so forth. But as the years went on, I went from a mostly black elementary school to a more mixed middle school. And then in high school, I went to uh, one that had an honors program so that everyone in the city kind of wanted to go to that program. So I was the only black male uh, with mostly white people uh, and a few black girls. And then uh, I, that was, I think, the first time that I kind of realized that people weren't growing up the same way that I was. Because again, like I said, there were so many memories that I had uh, that they just never, they didn't seem to pay attention to. The first instance was kind of silly in that, you know, as you're getting to know everybody in freshman year, you just talk about like what you do and what you like. And I was telling someone, I like, I like to watch a lot of Moesha. And they were like, what's Moesha? And I was like, Moesha is a sitcom, you know, Brandy, the singer. They were like, I don't, I don't know which one's like, it comes on Monday, 7 o'clock, you know, and just like, and they're like, oh, is it a black show? And I was like, I guess, yeah, it's black people. And they're like, oh, I don't watch black shows. And I was just like, oh, okay, that is a signifier for you that you just kind of look at the TV and say, that's not for me. 
And then that led to our uh, discussions in class about, well, why come we can't have a white entertainment television? And all of that stuff. Where, and then you just kind of realize these people are living in another world. This is what my grandparents were talking about. And then I think, so I'm in high school around the 2000s, uh, and I think we had a KKK rally or some incident that came up, and everyone was alarmed and discussing it. But I was like, I remember when the KK rallied, KKK rallied in the early 90s on the town square, the same town square that my grandparents told me uh, would host lynchings, you know, not that long ago. And so I was maybe like six years old. I remember when I can remember one being on the news and them just, you know, kind of acting like it was another day, but like, you know, stay away from the square, especially black people, because uh, they were trying to just protest an NAACP, NAACP meeting that was occurring. Uh, and then I can remember that it being the early 90s, I think it was around the time that Magic Johnson had came forward with his HIV diagnosis. So that was their like rallying cry. They were like, your best black person is like a sick pervert and, and who's sleeping with them and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is on the news. Uh, and then, you know, of course, at night they light the cross. And this is on the town square in front of the courthouse where like there's restaurants that you like go to any other day. And that was just another day. And then it happened again when I was maybe in my early teens. And so being in high school and talking about it was just like, this is history, this is stuff, but a lot of people just were ignorant to it. Uh, so yeah, when I saw Charlottesville, it didn't really phase me. And I think also I can look at my life and say that I've seen all that stuff before, but I think also it had to do with me loving the news and uh, being a journalist. And I can remember instances where you just go along with the news stories, and I think maybe it, it's when things become a pattern or it become really heightened. Kind of just like last year, when we had like these police shootings back to back to back, and so uh, the first one happens, uh, and then you're like, okay, this is happening, let's pray, let's get together, people in the city are protesting. And then the second one happens, and you're like, okay, gosh, let's pray, let's get together. And then when it was Philando, and it was live on Facebook, and all this stuff is happening, and you've, it really hits you, or it really hit me, because I was coming out of the gym and saw that. And it's one thing to, like, you're learning about it on Facebook from your friends, and at the same time as you're scrolling, you see your other friends who are in another world. They're talking about the basketball game or something. Uh, so it can be a lot. Uh, and uh, speaking of protests, I, I find it interesting now that everyone is uh, really gung-ho for them, but I've, I keep telling my friends who will try to get me to go out to one that's like, it's not for everybody. Um, and kind of the same way, I'm glad you talked about the parable, the, the day laborers, you know, people are gonna do their part in their own way. I protested when I was in high school and a little bit in college. And I wouldn't ever say that it, was, it wasn't fruitful. Things came from it. Uh, but that, just, that chapter, that energy has left me for the most part. Uh, and so the people who are there today, I think that's great that they have the energy, but in the same way, it's kind of like when you say people are just kind of waking up or they just see it. So now they're energized and they're all trying to go fight it. That's great. There are people who have been working and doing that for their whole life. So don't get mad at them because 
they want to stay home and pray or they want to write a check and pray. Uh, if, if you can go out on the street and risk your life or whatever, that's good. Uh, and I think there's one quote that kind of went along that with my high school protest where, or the one in particular where we wanted the principal to leave because a lot of teachers were unhappy and I pretty much led the protest. I called all the local channels. I you know, called local elected officials. And we had a protest on the front of campus. And, and it exceeded all our goals. But then like in the weeks and months after that, I could just remember feeling unease because it was kind of, what did I do that for? Who was that for? Uh, because the, no one seemed to really be happy. And nothing was happening immediately. And the people who were happy it seemed like there may have been ill intention. Uh, so I always tell people, you just need to know exactly for sure what you're fighting for. Like that Janelle Monet song, It's a Cold War. Uh, you just have to really like stay in your lane, pray for the most part and discern, and then go forward. Uh, and there's an Oprah quote that I often think about where it says like, do not allow yourself to be marginalized and defined by other people's agendas and intentions because the power of your story lies in your personal attention. Because uh, I think, especially now, in 2017, when everyone is trying to be woke more than before, and everyone tries to uh, correct everyone, tries to make everyone right, tries to get everyone on the right side, uh, demands apologies. Uh, I just can't help but remember from my own experiences that that's not, that's not authentic power that is external power. You're trying to change people, and that never really works. That never worked when I was growing up and started coming out to my family. You know, I couldn't make them be okay with this. I couldn't make them, you know, love me. I just could only continue to be myself, and hopefully they would see, oh, that's still Anthony. Uh, okay, well, you know, I don't know, you know, one of my uncles, when I first came out, I was like, well, I don't know what I'm gonna do when you bring someone over, I don't know if I can have that. And eventually that happened and nothing happened. Everything was fine and lovely. Uh, so it wasn't about me having an all in the family style argument. It was just about using my voice, my personal story, and just continuing to just to stand tall and I'll walk forward. Uh, so I think the main thing is just to always have empathy. I think that kind of goes maybe is the best way of defeating privilege, just to remember that we all have privilege in the same way of, you know, we can just assume that everyone's on the same page as us. And that doesn't even just go with racism. That uh, my mother is very disconnected and unplugged, like from technology. So when her job tells her, oh, well now your time off requests are on the computer, they, they just say that like it's a thing and everyone's okay with that, but my mother doesn't have a computer. So that becomes a whole thing where I have to try to figure out what she means when she says, you know, on this website or on this page, because I'm trying to do it 1,500 miles away on my computer. Uh, or when you apply to a job and, you know, they just flippantly request something, a reference or something with, that you just don't have. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's the main thing is just acknowledging your own privileges and having empathy for everyone else as well as yourself. Because like you said, it's not really about shame. It's not about, oh, I, I should know this or 
I can't believe the world is still like this. You know, the world is like this, and it very well likely will stay this way. A lot of the issues that are prevalent now were here last year when Obama was in charge. Just because Trump's in charge does not really mean that much. There's, there's more in our face to fight, but this will always be here. If they're not on the streets, they're in our city halls. They're, they're in our police cars pulling random people over. Uh, but you just got to keep going. As we prepare to share in communion together, would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, thank you for Anthony's story for his willingness to be vulnerable and share. God, thank you for the different stories each one of us have. We're reminded as we gather together around a table to break bread and share in a cup together, that this is how you connected your community. Through actual acts of spending time with each other, through investing in each other, through hearing each other's stories and experiences and making them our own. Allow us to be stewards of the amazing need for transformation in our culture, in our society. That these things are not things that are going to go away but that in small ways we can make meaningful differences. This work will never be finished, and yet it's a work that you call us to partner in. As we join in this together, we lift this time before you and are thankful for the way that you connect us together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I'd like to invite Anthony to come forward. And, and I'm curious if there's any questions that you have or any experiences that you would like to share with regard to what we're talking about or Anthony's story or something else going on as we continue this conversation. Give it to a white guy first. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to say thank you to both of you guys for addressing this topic the way that you did. Um, uh, it's pretty eye-opening. And uh, uh, in particular, Bob, I wanted to uh, thank you for describing privilege as something that didn't require shame. Because I think that's a message that I haven't heard before. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't have a a better way to articulate what I'm thinking. So for now, I'll just say thank you for that and, and for kind of opening, both of you guys opening my eyes to a lot of things. Thanks, Bob. Um, the only thing that I wanted to add was um, when explaining privilege for those, especially if they haven't thought about it before, is to think about ways they might use that for good. And part of that is when you're in a position of privilege uh, to use it and particularly not to leave it up to those who are already marginalized uh, to continue to do the emotional labor to educate and uh, lift up others. 
And so that means taking the time to educate yourself and to learn and to lead with empathy, as you've said, and not leaning on those who are already marginalized to use their stories to make the world change. And so that is part of privilege, and that's a very basic piece of it, but really to think about that from not always waiting for someone else to speak, but then when you do speak, being able to take the grace to do so. Uh, thank you for that one. Yeah, I've, I've had that happen more than I would like where something like this happens and a very well-meaning friend will come to me on Facebook Messenger or, or text me like at 11 p.m. and be like, so like, what does this mean? Like, like why? Like, what should we do? And, and I'm just like, I am not your source of information. Uh, Google is free. Uh, uh, and so just if this is the first time you're hearing about it, Google, look it up and just kind of see what it really is about or what it means. Or, you know, if if you didn't know the KKK was so alive and well, look the, look into them. Go to SPLC's website and see where the chapters are. And you may be surprised that there was a chapter in your hometown. Uh, yeah, just always think about what you can do first before you go to someone else. Well, thank you guys so much. Angie has let me know that she is willing to help facilitate continued conversation around this. So we'll have opportunities in the future to continue talking about these things. Thank you for the work that you do in the kingdom. Go in peace.